You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. If I can keep from cracking up as Robin's making faces at me through the glass here. Uh, <laughs> um, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where it was spring a few minutes ago. And now it's not. Oh, it's spring again. Oh, now it's not. <laughs> and that's Oregon. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's one of those cold, rainy days, and of course, it always seems like cold, rainy days. Uh, something happens, and I have to go outside and mess around with my koi pond filter and get my hands all wet and cold and everything. Yeah, it's a fun morning unplugging the filter. Uh, but yeah, we got lots of stuff to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. I mean, it, it's just like information overload sometimes, even though it, it's a you know middle of spring break. And our board of commissioners isn't meeting this week, and there's, you know, very little going on. And, you know, of course, the, the state house of representatives isn't having any floor sessions because somebody got COVID, but they won't tell us who. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of light in the, in the local news aspects in some ways. But then again, it isn't in the other ways because, you know, COVID seems to keep dominating the news. And... On Friday, of course, we find out about this on Tuesday, why they can't have us move to low risk on Tuesday, but they have to wait till Friday to actually move us, even though they know we met the metrics on Tuesday. But the state sent us an email on Tuesday and said, Lane County, you get to go from moderate risk to lower risk, which is the lowest of the categories, which, you know, just so you know, that allows you to actually have 10 people in your home from four different households now instead of eight from two different because COVID knows how to count. Um, but so, you know, there's, you know, we're moving to lower risk, which is great, you know, because there are so many small businesses that were teetering on the edge of, of financial solvency. And, and thank goodness the, the thing it really does is for those restaurants um, and other establishments, you know, that serve alcohol, it actually lets them stay open till midnight instead of 11 p.m. Uh, it, you know, allows them up to 50% of their indoor capacity and outdoor capacity of up to 300 people. I mean, and so it's kind of getting a, it just barely back into enough business. They could probably start making a profit, maybe hire back a waitress or a bartender. Who knows? Um, you know, so good news for our businesses. And at least they know now that will be in low risk for at least a couple weeks, that, that the governor's new thing where they hold you in the lower risk category if you move up uh, and give you a, a two weeks to, to get your case count back under control, we know we'll be in low risk for four weeks. So 
that surety for the business community where they're not bouncing back and forth every two weeks between risk categories makes it a lot easier for them to plan and, and do things. So it, it's great news we're moving in that lower risk. I, I can't say enough about um, what a great job our public health department's done in, in getting past the winter surge, what a great job our, our residents have done. But one of the things that's pretty amazing is what the U of O has done with their case counts. You know, they had this huge amount of cases and a big surge coming into uh, the winter, you know, when they reopened for winter term and the students came back. And they have taken what was, you know, 300 cases a week and taken it down to less than 30. I mean, they've done a great job, and that's part of the reason we've moved down to that low, lower risk category. So, you know, got to give credit where credit is due. I know I was pretty critical of the U of O early on in this because the way the metrics were being counted, they were actually pushing us into the extreme risk category for a couple of weeks when we could have been dropped down to high risk but not for the fact that we had the university in our, in our county. Um, but they've got control of their, their, uh, their particular outbreak, and we're, we're moving ahead there. And then the second thing that's good news with the, the COVID is that the vaccine availability is starting to really go up almost exponentially. We've been able to um, look at getting 30,000 doses in arms per week here in Lane County and have ramped up to set up to do that, provided we get given our 30,000. But we're getting, we're getting there. And we're, we've been moving so fast that we've gotten enough of the senior population vaccinated that we qualified to start vaccinating those between 45 and 64 with, um, you know, complicating health factors and some other categories earlier than some other counties. And in fact, we actually have been leading the uh, other high population counties in this state in per capita vaccination rate. So you know, we're, we're doing it right here in Lane County. Uh, all the vaccines getting into arms, uh, we're not wasting any vaccine. And we've actually moved this week to, instead of us contacting you to tell you um, when you can schedule an appointment, we're letting people self-schedule um, and it worked well enough that my wife, who fits into that new category uh, because of asthma and some other issues, um, was able to schedule her appointment, and she didn't even do it first thing on the day where they opened up the new slots. And when she scheduled uh, in the middle of the day that day, uh, there were still lots of slots open to schedule, and, and she's going to be getting her first dose on Saturday at the Lane Event Center. Um, of course, I don't qualify yet because I don't have any of those pre-existing health conditions that allow me to qualify, and I'm not 65 yet. So close, but not quite. Uh, it's going to be group seven for me uh, before I get my chance to get a vaccine, but I'm, I'm happy that my wife's able to get hers. was always a little concerned, and one, one of the reasons why I've been careful about wearing a mask and washing my hands and not touching my face and social distancing and all that stuff um, was because I was concerned about the possibility of complications that she, you know, if I got COVID, brought it home and gave it to her. Same reason I get the flu vaccine every year. She's in one of those risk categories for the influenza too, you know, with the, with the allergies, asthma, and other issues. Um, you just don't want to have those kind of people 
it be exposed to something that could be complicating to those other, you know, with those other conditions. So, you know, things are going well there. We're, you know, keeping things moving with the vaccines. Um, you know, we should really be starting to get to the point where, you know, maybe we can start thinking about what's going to happen this summer with, like, the Lane County Fair, the Oregon Country Fair, uh, the Scandinavian Festival, some of these big events that bring lots of economic uh, activity to our county. And, uh, you know, we're, are we going to start to see tasting rooms and, and restaurants reopen in wineries and, and events at wineries and weddings and everything else? Um, and that's one of the questions that's come up, and I've, I've been asking, um, you know, what's going on. And it just turns out that it looks like sometime next week, and actually it's going to be on a day, I'm going to be in meetings all day, the governor's planning to have a press conference to announce her plans about this summer and big events. So next Tuesday, we should be hearing from the governor. But in advance of that, uh, if you're somebody involved in event planting, planning and there's something you'd like to have taken into consideration, I believe the folks at Travel Lane County, uh, Eugene Coast Cascades, I think you can find them that way too. Um, you, those folks are uh, gathering kind of a, being a clearinghouse for questions to go up to the governor and things they might want to take into consideration as far as making um, some kind of, you know, guidance available to event planners for the summer. Because it sure seems like that by the time the Oregon Country Fair and the Lane County Fair roll around after the 4th of July, we should be pretty far along. We may not have 70%, and, and you know, 70% is, quote, herd immunity. Problem is, is as they're polling, 40% of the people out there are saying they're not sure they get the vaccine, you know, and, and about half of them, 20%, say they're never going to get it. So trying to get that last 60 to 70% may take a while to convince people to actually get the vaccine, even though it might be readily available. Um, so I hope that the governor is not going to make 70% the magic number for these events and that she realizes that at this point, almost everyone that is of high risk has been vaccinated, you know, and is getting vaccinated. And by the summer, if you wanted to and you were in those high risk categories, you know, elderly, you know, complicating health factors, you know, and all that stuff. You could have had a vaccine by then, you know, and you can choose not to go to these events if you're high risk and chose not to get a vaccine. So giving some surety to these event planners is going to be so important. So I look forward to the governor's press conference next Tuesday if she doesn't postpone it. But, um, you know, if you are into events and, and want to get some you know, input in, I think you could probably either, you know, contact the governor's office directly or, you know, work through Travel Lane County maybe to get some of that information into the state for consideration as to far as to, you know, what level of events are going to be allowed this summer and what are the rules going to be like, you know, because, you know, some things just won't work at 50% capacity. You know, they can't make enough money. So it'll be interesting to see how that all goes uh, with uh, the governor next Tuesday. 
So kind of shifting gears a little bit away from, um, you know, the, the COVID pandemic to a different pandemic, we are having a absolute pandemic when it comes to <clears throat> property crimes in Lane County and also, um, in particular, the, the latest uh, quick, easy money uh, is to basically hacksaw off somebody's catalytic converter out from an, underneath their vehicle and sell it to a scrapyard because catalytic converters contain a whole bunch of rare metals and they're worth a lot of money. Anyone that's had to replace one knows that. Um, so it's really gotten to be this epidemic of catalytic converter theft here locally in Lane County. And in fact, even my producer extraordinaire in her day job, you know, and she works for a local nonprofit, their nonprofit, somebody cut their fence, went in there and stole the catalytic converter off of one of their vehicles, clearly marked, you know, as in, and clearly obvious that it belonged to this nonprofit that's funded by grants and charity and people's donations and all that stuff. And these lowlifes are willing to steal from a nonprofit. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like taking candy from the baby, so to speak. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, how low can you go? A lot of these nonprofits are hanging on by a thread through COVID because their contributions are down. They, a lot of them haven't been able to actually you know, service clients in the way they used to. So their numbers are down because some of them get, are able to bill, um, you know, for their, you know, for service. And of course, if they're not delivering, you know, if they're delivering the service at 25% of capacity, they're only putting out 25% of the billing, um, you know, for some of the reimbursement that's available from some of the, the uh, uh, government agencies that contract with them. And then you go and take the catalytic converter from their from their van. It's like nice, real nice. Tell me that isn't a little bit of addiction-driven property crime. And it, it's our failure to address that, you know, that issue, and and how you know Measure 110 didn't do any, you know, actually made it easier for people to stay addicted took away a tool for us to force them into treatment, charging a felony, and, and, and getting them to move into treatment, you know, rather than serve a term, uh, what they call downward departure, which actually has them go into treatment before they're ever convicted, so that if they are successful, they drop the charges and it never shows up on their record. Um, but now, we get to charge them with a misdemeanor that has a fine behind it. Like they're really going to go into treatment over a fine. They never show up for court half the time anyway, let alone pay a fine. They don't care. They're thinking about the next, you know, time they're going to get high. Finding the next high. That's basically all they're thinking about, unless you truly interrupt them in some way. And it seems like criminal charges seem one of the best ways to get those people to, quote, hit the rock bottom that everyone talks about in recovery and, and get them to actually concentrate on recovery versus the addiction. 
So it, you know, just amazes me. But this brings up a whole nother conversation. There is a bill in the legislature, Senate Bill 803. And it's, you know, I haven't heard anybody say they're against this bill. It's basically a bill that would make it illegal to sell catalytic converters to scrapyards unless you are a certified dealer of some kind. Because the only people that should be scrapping catalytic converters are mechanics replacing them with another catalytic converter when they break or a dealership that's replacing them because of a recall or something like that. There's almost no reason a private citizen should be turning a catalytic converter in for the scrap value. None. So this bill would just make it require you to have license to scrap catalytic converters in order to to get money for. It would instantly stop trafficking in catalytic converters. Simple bill. And the bill literally is one paragraph long. And it's had a hearing and is scheduled for a work session. But the question is, is why wasn't this done in like the first two weeks of legislature? It was a problem back in February. You know, this is a rash of stuff and everything. You know, it's been going on for a while. This isn't something new. It's gotten worse and worse and worse. You know, as you know, we're seeing our addiction problems get worse and worse and worse and our homeless population is growing. Quickest, easiest way to make three or four hundred bucks. So why not get this done? Why didn't they schedule it for a hearing, a work session, put it on, on the Senate floor, vote it out, hand it over to the House, have the House do the same thing, and get it over to the governor's office and get it signed? Put it and, and and this is the one time where I could say an emergency clause is appropriate. But you know, I, I, I kind of you know wonder where they're going with that. So I know that my producer extraordinaire wants to get in on this conversation because this actually affected her and and her work. So Robin, you, you got a comment on catalytic converters? Well, not just catalytic converters, but uh, I don't know if I told you about two weeks ago, uh, we also got vandalized, and we have a smoke shack outside. We got the guy on video as uh, he tried to disassemble the smoke shack, and it's got quarter-inch plexiglass about the size of a sheet of plywood. He actually managed to get one of those loose, and before he left, he decided to uh, spray paint uh, some really nice welcoming words on two of the panels, which you got to love WD-40. It works on just about anything. And uh, anyways, um, we managed to recover it because it uh, went down to a homeless camp about five blocks from our shop. And in fact, the, I'll give the cop uh, uh, kudos and I, I didn't see I didn't see this happen, but uh, some other people did. Is that he laid this panel on a little green wagon when he took it, and he made him bring it back on the little green wagon. And people that saw it said it looked like the walk of shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, and it just there's so much 
theft going on with the the homeless population that's just you know exploded in Eugene to the point where I think there was a recent study release that said Eugene had the highest per capita homeless population in the country you know and you don't see it in Springfield you know I've been over to Springfield downtown you don't see that in Springfield yeah. Well, interesting is that I, I found the it wasn't hard to find the guy and in his little beat up trailer uh, right next to it was uh, a brand new generator providing electricity. Yeah, and I bet he paid for that generator, too. Oh, yeah. Um, just like I'm pretty sure that they pay for all those motorhomes that they're staying in. Yeah, well, some of those I, they, they might have picked up cheap if they're old old enough you know really old motor homes are not don't have a lot of value to them true yeah but uh yeah it you know and it probably was where they ended up you know they probably started out with a really old motor home and got kicked out of whatever property they were on and that's that became their household but you know it's still you know you can have some compassion for these folks, but you, you have to start also having compassion for the folks that aren't homeless and the impact the homeless are creating on other people. Well, coincidentally, on the same night that we the smoke shack was uh, torn apart, Kitty Corner from us is an automotive repair shop, and they had one of their vehicles stolen from out front. They managed to recover it. It was... Um, about eight, ten blocks west of us, but they had taken the battery out and did something to the electrical where they blew the lights out and did some other damage to it. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it just – and who pays for all that? You know, who, who – you know, it, you, know you, you pay for it and you guys don't provide services to the populations that you serve. You know, these nonprofits end up having to absorb the cost into their, you know, which means they're not providing the service they're intended to provide. Um, if it was a business, it would be, you know, some employee might not get a raise or might have their hours cut. You know, if it's a personal residence that they were stolen from, you know, it's, it's yeah, you might be able to get some insurance on it, but you're going to pay the deductible. And if you're not insured, you're going to pay for replacing it yourself or you're going to go without whatever it is that was stolen. Um, you know, and it just, it, it, it's really, you know, hurts the quality of life in this town. Well, something that's kind of interesting is that we had a homeless guy set up over by our preschool and it took a couple of days before he started having trash build up. And I actually had the opportunity to go talk to him. Really nice guy. And I asked him what his story was and he said that he was actually trying to better his life. He had a felony on his record, and he was going to LCC. Then COVID hit, and things were getting rough. And, you know, to give him kudos, you know, he didn't leave a bunch of garbage there when he left. But I asked him, are you aware of any services that are available to help you? And his answer was no. So I don't know if he's telling the truth or not, but, you know, we keep hearing about, paying extra taxes to help the homeless, but are they actually getting the services that we're paying with our taxes? Yeah, and that's part of one of the things as we look at, if you go back to, uh, you remember the attack report that came out 
um, a, a year, almost two years ago now, I think, maybe even almost three, on homelessness and trying to, to reduce homelessness in, in the Lane County. And one of the things it talked about was the need for better outreach and connecting with the homeless so they're aware sometimes of the services. And, and one of the, the real critical needs was rapid rehousing and making people aware of that particular service because once somebody's actually on the street like the gentleman you were talking to, it's really hard to get them back into housing. But if you know that somebody is losing their housing and going to be homeless and you can move them straight into some kind of temporary housing or what, you know, what, you know, that's what rapid rehousing, you know, the idea is. If you can keep them from ever being truly homeless, generally you can fix that situation a lot easier than once somebody's homeless for a week or two is really difficult to get them back into housing and, and, and in a permanent fashion. So, you know, that, that was recognized that that gap between services available and knowledge of the services is definitely an issue. And one of the things we're, we, we've done is we've hired some outreach personnel that, and, and contracted with um, shelter care and a few others um, to do a lot of that direct outreach to the homeless population. And quite often, those outreach workers are former, former homeless you know, yeah. that, and, and know, where, know how to go meet them on their level you know, and, and talk to these people and get them into services. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely an issue because we can pay for all the services we want, but if the folks that become homeless don't understand how to connect with those services or even that they're available, we can, you know, tax ourselves to death and never really solve the problem. Well, and something that uh, I think I brought up last year, uh, regarding property tax and interest forgiveness or in interest delay, because what is it if you have an outstanding balance for three years, you could actually lose your home uh, for owing a small amount on taxes? Yeah, it takes like six years to get to lose six. your home to, to completely. They, the process starts in three years, and it takes another three years to actually – get the sheriff to come and kick you off your property and, and auction the property for taxes. It's a full six-year process. <laughs> this I know because we've actually had properties go the full six years. And, and, and ap even after all that time period of ability to correct the situation and, and notices and everything else back and forth, we've had people say, I didn't understand and I want to get my property back. It's just, it's amazing, you know. You hear these stories. Oh well, I you know, I just didn't know. I didn't understand, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, it's like really six years of notices and 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 you know every almost every notice of delinquency usually comes with something about you know where to go for financial education and everything else. You know, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's pretty interesting. It's, it's just somebody that was trying to get by with not paying their property taxes, and when they actually lost the property eventually, they're like, oh, they weren't kidding you. Can I have it back now? Yeah, I never get my mail. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so it's it's fascinating when you're on the other side, you know, because uh, I I'm I'm one of the first people that will try not to have property taken by government, um, but every once in a while you just get people that just let it go. But you know, um, kind of getting back to the legislature and that that converter bill. So you know, why don't bills like that get dealt with early on in a in a legislative session? You know that that bill will pass with something like a, you know, 58 to 2 vote in the House and a 28 to 2 vote in the Senate, and the governor is going to sign it, you know, if it's not unanimous at that. So, you know, there's another bill, Senate Bill 405, that will fix a problem in our state law around um, losing certain rights if you don't reconstruct after 12 months after a fire. And, you know, of course, it doesn't take into account the fact that, you know, 4,000 homes were lost all at once on one day um, last September. You know, it's typical, you know, this is about rebuilding after a typical, you know, domestic fire or something like that. Senate Bill 405 fixes that for the fire victims and gives them up to five years to rebuild because right now it's hard to even get an engineer or an architect to design your new home because <laughs> they're all booked up, let alone a contractors are booking two years out for start work times, not complete work times. So trying to make a 12 month window is really tough. Bill's probably going to be supported almost unanimously because it's helping fire victims and, and, and fire victims were all up and down you know, the uh, the I-5 corridor, so you've got Democrats and Republicans all trying to help their constituents from Clackamas County all the way down to Jackson County. Why isn't that bill already passed and on the governor's desk? It, it's had a hearing, and at least it's gotten a, rec, a, a recommended for approval out of the, out of the committee. It's actually had its, its work session, but it hasn't actually moved to a floor vote yet. You know, why is it bills like that that fix things, like the bill that would fix the fact that they're going to tax the stimulus payments from last year with Oregon income taxes? There's a bill that would fix that, and that hasn't moved yet. Why don't all why why doesn't legislature go around and go? You know what? These are all real simple bills. They're all supported, you know, pretty broadly. Let's get all those done and help the people. Because that'll relieve a lot of anxiety out there for fire victims. It'll stop the catalytic converter theft. It's going to, you know, help people file their taxes correctly. Um, why don't they do all that stuff? You know, do it first. No, no. We're going to bring forward a bill that is going to strip Measure 11, you know, the, the mandatory sentencing around violent crime. We're not talking about property crime or drug crime, we're talking about rape and murder that set mandatory sentences that was voted on twice by the entire state and approved overwhelmingly, and even by a higher amount the second time. We're going to mess with that before we finish work on stopping catalytic converter theft, helping fire victims, or helping people with not getting taxed on their COVID relief checks. 
Why does that make sense? Something that's that controversial, that divisive, and that partisan. There's not a single Republican sponsor of any of the Measure 11 reform bills. They're all Democrats. Why are we working on Senate Bill, you know, uh, 454? Is that the right number? I'm trying to remember the number of the bill for um, that would basically blow away the concealed carry uh, in in this state. You know, why are we working on gun bills ahead of fixing the catalytic converters, helping fire victims, helping folks trying to survive the COVID pandemic? You know why? Because if they did save some of those controversial bills for last, maybe then you know, the Republicans might exercise their right to deny a quorum and they wouldn't be able to pass them. So they're trying to force them through first, I think, in a political move. So just remember, the next time legislative elections come up, who decided to put partisan politics ahead of helping people? Because these decisions aren't being made by both parties. There's only one party in control of the agendas at the state legislature right now. They hold the Senate president's seat, and they hold the House, the Speaker of the House. And those two places can decide which bills go forward and which get to a floor vote and which get out of there early, and they could easily decide to get Senate Bill 803 that, that, that would fix the catalytic converter theft problem, or Senate Bill 405, which would help fire victims, or the bill that helps with the, the tax relief on the COVID checks, they could get all those done. And there's a, I, I can probably count about 10 other bills that, that are in there that would just fix current problems quickly, easily, with, with great support. Five, five, four. Sorry. I knew I had the numbers mixed up. <laughs> Senate Bill 554, not 454, is the one on, on the gun gun issue. But, yeah, we're, we're going to push all these, these really controversial things, whether it's Measure 11 reform or, um, you know, some of the, the changes in uh, bail, some of the changes in police uniforms and policing, uh, you know, it's just why go to the controversial issues first? Why not just get done some of the easy business of the legislature? It's kind of like, you know, I always couldn't understand why they don't pass the school budget early in the legislature. So that the school districts that are having to budget for the buy-in, you know, their next their next budget year can know sometime before the budget year actually starts how much money they're going to get instead of guessing like they have to do half the time because the budget doesn't come out from the state until after their budget year starts. Um, you know, why not move some of those budget bills up in the legislature and get some of that work done? Is the legislature truly there to serve the people? You know, they're talking about fining legislatures for exercising a right of a legislature to deny a quorum, a right that both parties have exercised in the past. 
but they're going to find them because they're quote not serving the people when they when they exercise that 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 parliamentary maneuver to deny a quorum. Well, maybe they should start fining the entire legislature for not passing bills like Senate Bill 803 early on, for not doing the school budget early on. That certainly seems it's just as bad as walking out when the legislature is getting ready to do something as damaging as cap and trade would be for this state. I don't know. I think uh, they ought to really be looking carefully at themselves uh, around some of these issues. So, you know, I have failed to mention all through this entire rant (laughs) that we're actually a call-in show and mention our call-in number, which is 646-721-9887. You just have to press one to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press one and, you know, we we don't have a whole line of people waiting to get on the show today because it is spring break. And uh, so you get right on if you call in. Um, but, you know, we've got a couple other things we can talk about today. If, if it wasn't, you know, catalytic converters and the homeless problem, you know, we could be talking about, um, you know, a couple other issues. And, and one of the things I want to talk about, and, and this is a particular bug in my crawl, a little bit uh, as my my dad worked for CBS News, was a reporter for CBS News. So I have a lot of respect for journalism when journalism's done well. And of course, he worked for CBS. Walter Cronkite actually hired him in the 50s. So, you know, that was, you know, the heyday of some of those those big network news programs. And yes, there was some planting of the news. There's no doubt that Walter Cronkite actually ended, you know, the Vietnam War uh, in some ways with some of the reporting he did. Um, but today it seems like there's this, such a strong desire to make a narrative out of the news and make whatever event happened fit a narrative that they're willing to ignore sometimes even the evidence when it stares them in the face about stuff. And I, 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 I don't understand how in the world the shootings that were driven by somebody that admitted to the police they were because of a sexual addiction problem somehow or another became a hate crime against a particular minority. When the the perpetrator was arrested on his way to Florida to carry out additional, you know, yet to be uh, defined uh, retribution against the porn industry in Florida. Um, it, it, it was obviously driven by this sexual addiction problem this gentleman had. And it had nothing to do with the race of the victims, but the profession of the victims. And, and, but the media crammed this into being part of their narrative about hate crimes against Asians due to COVID. And it had absolutely nothing to do with it, according to the actual shooter. And as I look at journalism, I, I, I had to shake my head 
as they were doing the, spinning the story that direction in the first couple days. Um, and, you know, you, some of the initial reporting that was done of the Boulder shooting tried to, you know, make it another um, another shooting that was, uh, you know, a kind of a hate crime sort of situation. Now, now it just seems like it's more of a very angry person that had been making threats of violence since his high school days as a wrestler when he didn't get chosen to represent his varsity at, at the state meet or something like that. Um, but, you know, it just that that desire sometimes now that our media just goes straight to to make the narrative they pre-decided on fit this, the event that they're reporting instead of just reporting the event. Whatever happened to that kind of journalism, just report the facts. Let us come to conclusions. Or do your opinion piece at the end of the news and announce it as an opinion piece. I mean, it used to be pretty obvious. Remember that, uh, at the end of the newscast, they'd have a one minute and they'd actually put the word opinion up on the screen <laughs> a lot of times as they brought somebody in to give an opinion. I mean, I, I'm, I am saddened for the journalism industry as it, as it exists today. And, and only occasionally in local news do I see good journalism, reporting of the facts, who, what, where, when. Leave the why unless it's reported directly from the person that's explaining why they did something. Leave that out of the story. Don't, you know, let people draw their own conclusions or wait till you understand the why. I mean, so often they want to jump to conclusions on why without having all of the information and the investigations done. But you know, I, even Walter Conkite embarrassed with some of the what I saw going on in the last week or so in journalism. And just, I, I, I will say I'm a little bit heartened, though, by the fact that journalists are starting to look a little askance about what's going on at the border in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and, and kind of asking questions about, so why can't we get into those facilities? You know, why aren't you letting us in to take pictures? You know, of course, they are juveniles. You really don't want their pictures all over the place. Um, but it, it's still uh, interesting you know, the disparate treatment of the border crisis from when it was occurring in the Trump administration to where it's occurring under the Biden administration. But now it's starting to have gone on long enough that even the journalists are starting to ask questions they asked when it was the Trump administration. So um, be interesting to see if we get back to some real journalism in this country, reporting facts. Who was involved? What happened? Where did it happen? When did it happen? How did it happen? 
let me figure out why. Don't tell me why, unless you put the word opinion in front of that portion of the newscast. Uh, sorry, little rant there. So, just the facts, ma'am. Yeah, just the facts. <laughs> Again, you know, we got about 15 minutes left in the Bose Nose Show here. If you want to get in on the conversation, it's six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Just press one, you can get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. Hey, I also want to mention one other thing that's a little bit outside of Lane County News. Um, the Ninth Circus Court, um, and I refer to them that way because they are the most overturned court of all the appellate courts in our by the Supreme Court in our nation. You know, there's so think about that a minute. All, you know, the most decisions of any appellate court that have been overturned by the Supreme Court. And percentage and percentage wise, number wise, you name it, they they lead the pack by a long ways. So they they're they're well known for making decisions that end up getting overturned by the Supreme Court. And today they made a decision that basically up they chose not to hear a case against the state of Hawaii where Hawaii banned open carry in public. Um, and it, it, it was being promoted that they had ruled against open carry period and people in all Western states are gonna have a problem now. That's not necessarily true. The actual decision was not to hear a case that pertained to Hawaii. And so the Hawaii's law stands, that still means that the rules here in this state, which allow you to open carry are still valid. So you can still open carry in Oregon and I you know, just have to remind folks that I do carry, um, although this particularly uh, would not necessarily qualify as open carry because it's inside the waistband and, and uh, is not always visible by, from three sides. But um, you know, that's definitely um, something that concerns me a little bit because it opens the door to any state legislature deciding they want to ban open carry as well as concealed carry, because they basically said in their decision they, that there really was no right to carry, that they believed their interpretation of the Second Amendment was you're allowed to have guns to defend your home in your home, and that's it. That for some reason, when you leave your home, your right to self-defense goes away. So, and Hawaii's law, to be clear, is not totally banning carry. It just says you can't carry without a license. So, unlike other, you know, Oregon, you can open carry, no license. Concealed carry, you have to have a license. Some states, you can conceal carry with no license at all. Um, I actually like those states because you never know and you, you're on good behavior because you never know. Um, but you never really know in Oregon either because concealed, concealed carry is pretty easy to get as long as you don't have a prior felony and a few other things and you're willing to take a class. Um, you know, it's fairly easy to do. Although I think I went well beyond that. I, I actually took training in firearm safety and actually the use of a firearm and self-defense and everything, you know, 
even went through the whole fake house thing where, you know, you clear the house and you have the good guy, bad guy silhouettes and things like that and having to make snap decisions. Yeah, I've done all that. In fact, I probably did as much training as you know, most private security that carries weapons do. Uh, so uh, I, I feel well prepared and well trained and well well versed in understanding and um, what is legal uh, as far as you know when to shoot, not shoot, and and when it's safe. You know, because <laughs> it can be legal and still unsafe, and you shouldn't shoot. Well, you know, one way to cure it is like, uh, or change their opinion, is just like defund the police until you need one. Yeah. Well, uh, don't worry about Antifa until somebody storms the Capitol. Look at Portland. They're trying to put $2 million back into their police department because since they defunded it, they've had, what is it, a 2,000% increase in murders or something? It's, it's or gun violence. It's been some incredible increase in gun violence in Portland. So it's like, yeah, it, it, it's all fine until you need that person. Yeah. So now Portland is known as the city of dead roses. Yeah. Oh, okay. But don't bump, Robin. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, we crack ourselves up here on the Bose Nose Show. Every Wednesday, 4 o'clock. And on Facebook Live at KRBN Internet News Talk Radio Facebook page. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting um, watching people now want the police to solve some problems. You know, and, and you're starting to see the calls for the need for police here or need for police there. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that you know, in Boulder, they were really happy when all the armed police showed up to deal with the armed uh, shooter at the super uh, there in Boulder. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't get the, the defund and disarm the police movement uh, at all, particularly knowing that there's this big movement to, you know, federally try and incentivize the cahoots model that we have here in Eugene. And what people don't understand about cahoots is it doesn't work without police backup. You have to have the ability for those folks that are responding to a mental health crisis to be able to call for and quickly get a law enforcement backup response. And I have heard that directly from cahoots workers, that they would never work in the job they're doing or do the job they do if they didn't know they could call for EPD or SPD and get them there quickly when they needed them. And it's a lot of the times they respond, end up with an EPD call. If the person they're dealing with is not de-escalating, is moving into criminal behaviors, they call the, EPD, you know, the law enforcement. And, you know, where this was so clearly demonstrated was, you know, Lane County helped obtain a grant to expand the CAHOOTS model out into Western Lane in the Florence area. Well, we were able to start the first phase of that in the city of Florence because the city of Florence has a police department. 
and the mobile crisis response, the mental health response person there that was being, you know, we were working through the Sayusla Valley Fire District to, to have that response, worked inside the city limits. We, they couldn't go outside the city limits because once they got out into, you know, Mapleton or Tiernan or, you know, across the river, uh, and down towards Dune City, or if they went north up towards Bear Creek, there was no backup for them because our sheriff's department patrol has, a, you know, maybe a 45-minute average call response time anywhere in Lane County because there's usually only three of them on patrol in the entire county. So you can't have that mental health response without having the law enforcement backup. Now, fortunately, we were able to patch together funding for two resident deputies in the Florence area for the next five years and make a commitment to that. And now we're starting to expand that mental health crisis response during the time periods those resident deputies are on duty. Because now we know if that person gets to handling a mental health crisis that starts escalating, they have somebody they can call. So everybody that wants to defund the police and, and go to the CAHOOTS models, they don't work without the police. You can't defund the police and, and substitute CAHOOTS. CAHOOTS gets added to police. And I fully support the CAHOOTS model because there's so many times when de-escalating and dealing with a mental health crisis with mental health services is the correct way to go because we're not, you know, taking somebody that's having a mental health crisis and bringing them to the Lane County Jail, you know, with hard surface walls and clanging metal bars and 24-hour lights isn't necessarily going to help them recover from their crisis. It could actually be the worst environment to put them in. I mean, we try and you know, be sensitive. We've got mental health staff and medical staff there in the jail, but it is not the best environment to deal with a mental health crisis. That should be dealt with the mental health services system, not the criminal justice system. So, yes, CAHOOTS is great, and that CAHOOTS model is great, but it's an add-on to police services, not an in instead of. And I think they kind of learned that in Portland when they decided they were just going to strip the funding from the police, and now suddenly they're dealing with this huge violent crime outbreak. Um, and, you know, Portland, you know, that one gentleman wrote the article, you know, Portland is dying, you know, just like Seattle is dying. Now I'm starting to see, you know, indications that people are actually looking at all of Oregon that way. I saw a post recently from a friend of mine that's a realtor, and he handles a lot of relocation-type real estate where people are coming from out of state, and he recently got an email asking to be taken off of their, their um, notifications for properties coming on the market from somebody out of state saying, we have taken Oregon off of our list of states we wish to relocate to because of the quality of life issues and the 
reduction in freedoms and everything else that's been going on politically in your state and also just with crime and everything else, we, as beautiful as Oregon is, we can't move there. And he said that's not the first time it's happened. So people are looking at Oregon now and thinking, do I really want to move there? I mean, how many times do you have to see video from downtown Portland of people throwing firebombs and rioting all summer long? How many stories about the homeless that make national news? And, you know, other stories about Oregon that are making the national news. You know, how much does that impact? And then, you know, other stories, like now we have a corporate activities tax. There's all sorts of desires to raise additional taxes in the, in the legislature right now. We've got local payroll taxes and income taxes being put on. You know, if you live in Portland right now, you're paying the highest income tax local and state in the nation. How long can that go on before that starts affecting our economic viability and the desirability of Oregon for economic development? How many companies are starting to look at that? I mean, this was individual people choosing not to locate to Oregon. When do you think it's going to start impacting Oregon's economy? And we start this spiral of, of, of this happening. Yeah, and, and Robin's reminding me, not only do they have the highest income tax, they also have a $35 a year arts tax <laughs> because artists, you know, can't be left to make it on their own. We have to subsidize them through the government. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, I, I, I fear for Oregon if we don't start reversing some of these trends. We have to come to grips with the fact that we can be compassionate for our homeless population while at the same time holding them accountable for criminal behaviors. We can't let, you know, that compassion for the homeless affect the people that aren't homeless in the way it's happening, where catalytic converters are being stolen from nonprofits that serve our most vulnerable communities to support drug addictions while somebody's living in a tent on the side of a road in wide open, trashing everything. Oh, well, I, I think I've said enough for the day. I'm sure I'm going to get heat for some of what I said today, but you know what? That's why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, We'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose No Show here at 4 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Mm-hmm.